I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Being the fifth of six very competitive siblings, one of which is an Olympian, it's no surprise that Andrew Mangan has found his way to the top of the world in his sport. His parents and all of his siblings rowed in high school and college, so it's fitting that Andrew began rowing in high school as well. His junior year, at the age of 17, he was relaxing with his buddies in a hot tub on a cold winter night after a long day of skiing. This calm and relaxing night, though, took a devastating turn. During our conversation, Andrew walks us through the details of what happened that fateful evening that left him paralyzed from the chest down. With no real prognosis from doctors, he was frustrated but determined to do as much as he could to walk out of that hospital. And 80 days later, using only crutches, he did just that. But that's when the real rehab began. Through consistent and intentional hard work, Andrew's been able to regain the ability to walk and row. And in 2020, he was introduced to para rowing. He now has his sights set firmly on the Paralympics in 2024. And this week, Andrew's at the World Championships in Belgrade, Serbia, attempting to qualify his spot for next summer in Paris. So make sure you follow him after this episode to cheer him on. Andrew's inspiring message for all of us is to stay positive because there's no limit to what you can do. Some of the mindset strategies Andrew shares with us about his recovery are the very same skills you need to conquer your biggest goals. If you want to start harnessing your mental game, but you're not sure where to start, I've created a new free guide with the top 10 mental skills that every athlete must have. It's a checklist, a guide, and a self-assessment to help kickstart your journey to confidence. Go grab your copy over at laurawilkinson.com skills. That's laurawilkinson.com skills. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level so that we can bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Andrew Mangan, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited to hear your story today. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Now, I like to go back to the beginning with all of my guests. What I have read online is that your whole family is just like avid rowers. Were you doing that like from birth? Were you like in the boat rowing? Like how did that kind of happen? (laughs) Yeah, my whole family definitely is very athletic. I actually, my sister would would be upset with me if I said we're all rowers because she's definitely more of a skier. But yeah, both my parents rowed in high school and college and then all my older brothers rowed. So when I started high school, I skied growing up and I skied in high school as well. Ski raced, rowing became kind of my main sport. Uh, it also helps that I'm tall, which is definitely beneficial for rowing. Well, did that start as like a family thing? Like were your parents kind of just taking you guys out or how did you guys all get involved? Because in there's five siblings, right? There's six of you guys. Yeah, there's six of us. It didn't, uh, we didn't really row much. I mean, my mom, like we had an erg growing up, but I don't think any of us were really erging <laughs> before high school. But in high school, basically my oldest brother joined the rowing team in rowed for all four years. And then the next brother also joined. So it was a bit of following in the footsteps for sure. And I think we all just really enjoyed the sport, enjoyed the community and kind of fell in love with, as my parents have. Definitely them having rowed pushed us in that direction. And that seems kind of 
at odds almost to, to be doing skiing and rowing? Is it like one's a summer sport and one's a winter sport for you guys? Like that's just, those were your seasons? Yeah, that was pretty much it. So growing up, I raced a lot. And even my freshman, sophomore years of high school raced a lot competitively and would basically row up through November because I'm from Buffalo, New York. And so pretty much end of November, you can't really row on the water anymore. And often the waterway freezes over the winter, so you can't get back on the water till the beginning of April, which is right about when the ski season ends. So it worked out pretty well. Would have like morning practices at school. And then on the weekends, we'd travel around the East Coast to, to ski race. That's awesome. See, I'm from like Southern Texas. So it's so hot here. Like, yeah, the whole skiing thing is just like, I'm like, you can do that in high school. That's so cool. I love it. So was there a lot of competitiveness among you and your siblings? Yeah, I, I would say we're all rather competitive for sure. Like growing up, my mom would always do triathlons and such. So we're always competing and around that. And I think that definitely helped kind of motivate us. And then we're also just competing against each other all the time. Like when a lot of us are home, we'll go on bike rides. And it's, it's still competitive. It's a fun bike ride, but you know, <laughs> someone's got to win. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I love it. Now, and one of your sisters is an Olympic skier, right? Yeah. So my older sister is a uh, two-time downhill Olympic skier. Wow. What years? 2018 and 2022. Man. For the past two. Yeah. So how did that like, was a family just like over the moon? Like what was that like having a sister make the Olympic team? Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I mean, she's been racing. She went to high school in, in Buffalo, but she kind of basically from her sophomore year in high school has been on the US, been on and off the US team since then. She's 26 now. So the past, whatever that is, 10 years, nine or 10 years. And in 2018, she was actually the last American name to the team. Unfortunately, one of the other skiers was injured a couple of weeks before the Olympics. So she was kind of the next spot and she was called up. So we, we basically learned like three weeks before that, that she was going to go. And oh, wow. we were actually all able to um, basically just <laughs> scramble and, and <laughs> get over there, which was really cool, especially since you couldn't go to um, these past Olympics. So it was really neat. It was a really cool experience just being able to watch her over there and experience that. That is cool. Like, did you have big like goals and aspirations growing up or was it just like always fun for you? That's just what the family did. Yeah, it was always fun for me and all my sports. I mean, obviously I was always trying to be the best that I could. Like in skiing, I never really like I never saw myself being an Olympic skier, but I would obviously try to be as fast as I can and do as well as I could. And, and similar for rowing, like I my short-term goal when I was beginning in high school was to like get recruited and, and row at college. I didn't really, wasn't really thinking about kind of beyond that. I think it was more just, I enjoy the sport. And, and if, if you're doing something you enjoy, kind of want to be the best you can at it. Yeah, for sure. Well, so walk us through what kind of changed some of the trajectory of your goals and what you were wanting to do. A big sea change kind of was in my junior year of high school. I had an accident and broke my neck, which resulted in a spinal cord injury that left me initially largely paralyzed from the uh, neck shoulders down. And that was obviously quite a big change. I was pretty fortunate in my recovery. I went to an inpatient hospital in Denver, Colorado for three or four months and basically was able to regain enough movement where I, I walked out of that facility about 70 days later with arm crutches, with assistive devices. And then 
over the next year and a half was just doing outpatient every day and basically recovered to the point pretty similar to where I am now, which is I can get around, I can do most things that I want to do, albeit slightly limited. Like I can't run or jump or squat down, but I can walk around and as much as I want. Without crutches? Yeah, without crutches. I used a cane for a while, but kind of just <laughs> didn't really like having to carry around a cane. So now I'm just slightly less stable, but <laughs> without a cane. <laughs> gotcha. Wow. Will you walk me back through that night? Like what happened? What was the accident? It was uh, a bit of a freak accident. So I was, it was right after a big snowstorm in Buffalo. Uh, this was December of 2016. And I basically jumped into a pile of snow that I thought was a big pile of like powder, soft snow and hit something, not really sure what it was, whether it was ice or something under the snow, but something that pushed my head back and just caused my C5 vertebrae, just kind of right at the back of your neck to break into three pieces. Oh my goodness. That ultimately caused, put pressure on the spinal cord and, and caused the initial and, and semi-permanent paralysis. Do you remember much of it? What was that initial, you know, few moments like, or do you even remember? Yeah. Yeah. I remember it all very well. I didn't lose consciousness at all. <laughs> it's funny. I, one of like the, the healthiest spinal cord injuries uh, you'll talk to because usually it's pretty hard to break your spine, whether neck or back. So most spinal cord injury patients are pretty beat up. And I was like, other than my broken neck, totally fine. Like didn't even have any really contusions or bruises or anything. But yeah, I mean, I remember like right after, like when I jumped into the snow, the, the first thing that I kind of realized was like, I couldn't feel the temperature. I couldn't feel the cold of the snow and didn't at all really think that I had broken my neck uh, at that point. Cause I mean, I think for most people, that's not really your go-to thought when you get injured. Cause it's such a rare occurrence. Like you maybe know one or two people if that, who have that injury. So I definitely didn't think that was it. Uh, I'm not really sure what I thought had happened. I knew something had happened, but I, I definitely don't think I understood the severity of it. I was pretty fortunate in that I was able to get operated on relatively quickly. I was operated on that night, I think four or five hours or even less than that after the injury to reduce some of the swelling, which was definitely helped in my recovery. Now you said you broke it in three places. Like when they had, and I think you had multiple surgeries, didn't you? Yeah. So I broke one vertebrae C5. It broke into three pieces. So I had one surgery that night, which basically just took out one of the pieces of the vertebrae that was pressing the spinal cord because the most spinal cord injuries, the actual paralysis comes from swelling around the broken vertebrae that pushes on the spinal cord and, and kind of cuts off some of the blood flow. And that also affects the severity. Like if you have really intense bruising or the bones pushing in there and the blood flows cut off and that part of the spinal cord dies, then there's really no chance of recovery in that specific portion. Time was important with that first surgery then. Yeah. Time is, is definitely important in relieving some of that pressure to basically limit any further injury to the spinal cord. And then a couple of days later, I had another surgery that put in basically some plates and screws to, to keep everything together. Those are still in there six years later. <laughs> wow. Walk me through, because you, then you were in, that, in the hospital, you said, for several months. Like what, you said 70 days, 80 days, something like that? Yeah, so I was in intensive care for two weeks here in Buffalo. And part of that was basically because I was waiting for a bed to open up at one of, there's like three or four rehab or 
that are primarily focused on spinal cord injuries that are like kind of state-of-the-art rehab facilities in the U.S. And I was waiting for a bed to open up at one of those. And luckily one opened up at Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado. And I, so I was transferred there on like the 23rd of December. And about that point, so that's probably two weeks, maybe a little over two weeks after the accident. So at that point, I had some twitching in my quads, but for the most part, it was still not a lot of movement or sensation. When you were in the hospital, like recovering, what whether it was an ICU or, or even later, I mean, were you in shock at all? Were you like, there's no way I'm paralyzed. This is just, I'm going to get better. I mean, were you in denial? Like, did you go through those five grief stages? I mean, like, where was your head at that time? Because everything I read about you, you were just so positive and so optimistic, but I feel like there must have been a breaking point or was there not? Yeah, I think kind of looking back and, and thinking about it, I mean, it would have made sense for me to have been a bit more, I don't know, maybe it was that I just wasn't really understanding the entire situation or didn't really understand at that point or just kind of accepted it. I think my thought process basically was, well, like this is where I am now and it is serious. And as obviously, as I learned more about the injury and such in the hospital, I I understood more the severity of it. But I think I just kind of decided that there wasn't really much benefit to being super depressed or, or trying to blame myself or other people for where I was. And I didn't really know what my recovery would look like. Obviously, I hoped that I would make a full recovery and be back to where I was in a year. But I think I just decided that it was as beneficial to just kind of accept the state of things and make moves and see where I could improve my recovery and improve my chances and and kind of give my all to trying to get to that point. And then wherever that brought me, I at least know that I did all that I could. And yeah, I mean, it maybe was just kind of denial of my circumstances that allowed me to be in that mindset. But whatever the case, I think it was definitely beneficial in that I just kind of thought, all right, this is where I am. This is what needs to be done and broke down a a relatively large goal and task into just small attainable tasks that I kind of work towards day after day. Which is awesome and brilliant and keeps you motivated and keeps you going, right? You got something to look forward to. What was the hardest part of that recovery for you? I think the hardest part is basically just the unknown of the recovery, especially with spinal cord injuries. If you break your leg or if you tear an ACL or most other injuries, especially like often sport-related injuries, you have your surgery and you have your recovery path. And yes, your like performance at the end of that path isn't guaranteed. But for the most part, you know, if I do this and if I follow this path, like 95%, I'll be in this place this is the prescribed recovery. And if I do this, it'll all work out, or at least I'll know where I'll be. And with spinal cord injuries, it's just so unknown. Like I always kind of had an issue with that in that my thinking was, well, there is a lot of data and there are a lot of people who've had spinal cord injuries. And and perhaps, yes, we don't know exactly if you have this injury, you'll be this recovered in nine months, but like maybe we could draw broader parallels to basically inspire hope in patients because it's really hard. I mean, it was hard for me and it's hard for most spinal cord injury patients who are recovering that they're basically told, depending on their movement, it's like, this is great. This is encouraging and you might get more, but kind of don't get your hopes up. Just keep recovering and we'll see. And I think that was definitely challenging. And I definitely was inspired and helped along that path by being connected with basically other spinal cord injury patients who had had similar injuries to me in the past. And 
had really good recoveries and I could kind of see where they were today and talk, all right, well, when did you start moving your hands or when did you start moving your, your toes and stuff and what exercises worked for you? That was kind of what inspired my podcast, Connecting the Resilient, basically to just get more people on it, to share their stories, talk about their recovery journeys so that maybe someone with a similar injury or a similar path could find inspiration there. I think definitely the hardest part is just kind of the unknown around the recovery and just having to get up every day, go through the motions. And it was not even so much in the first, like obviously the first couple of weeks when I had no movement was challenging. But then as I started, like was able to stand and was able to do bigger locomotive movements, then it was like, all right, well now I can stand. So I'll see how long I can stand. But once I was out like four months or even a year out, the step changes in my recovery were much smaller. And it was very much so every day, I'm pretty much doing the same thing. And I'm not really seeing a ton of change the day to day and just staying motivated and staying consistent, knowing that like, if I put in the work now, especially the closer I am to my injury, the more likely I'll get, I'll maximize the amount of recovery that I can get. I can imagine that that unknown being just wildly frustrating because I'm a person who likes the the black and white and the plan so that I can execute on it. So yeah, anytime there's unknowns and that's where a lot of fear comes from too, right? When you just, you don't know and nobody can tell you and that's just a little unnerving. So I can totally understand how you felt along those recovery steps. We had a another guest on our podcast a little while back, Robert Paler, and he had his neck broken in a rugby accident. He was put in like an illegal headlock and he kind of talked about the same thing. Like they said, if he'd be lucky to ever feed himself and he ended up doing that in the hospital. And now he's every day, he like posts, you know, on his Instagram that he's getting up and he's like in the walker and he goes like a few more steps. And it's just, I love that you guys are kind of leading this charge into like, it is unknown. So I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep pushing this and seeing where I can go. And I like that you're really connecting other people too and sharing stories to encourage each other and to help each other kind of get through that unknown and make it a little more clear of what people's progress has been and where they can go from there and, and encouraging too, right? Like you're not the only one going through such a traumatic event. Ultimately, like at the end of the day, big thing that I, like when I talk to people who've been like recently injured or whether it's a spinal cord injury or, or some other injury or some other traumatic and unplanned event is to just kind of control the things you can control. And for me, one of those things is just how you react to the situation and how you respond, like how your attitude. And I do think that has just a huge effect on your mental well-being and how you respond and how you attack each day. But yeah, just control what you can and make the most of that and then hope for the best, hope the results follow. Definitely. A thousand percent agree with that. During this whole rehab, were you still trying to do schoolwork and finish that? Because you were a junior in high school. Yeah. So I kind of got hurt right before my Christmas break. And then basically when I was in the hospital, like I was doing six, seven hours of rehab a day and ultimately kept up most of my schoolwork. And my school was really, uh, they were quite accommodating. There were some local teachers who basically would come to the hospital and go over like some of the, like my AP chem work and such with me. But that was definitely a big reason that I decided to come back to Buffalo after the inpatient was so that I could finish my junior year, which I was able to do, which, which I was definitely excited about. Cause I just, I didn't really want to have to repeat the whole year again. Oh gosh, no. Who wants to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was homeschooled up through eighth grade as were many of my siblings. So I was 
somewhat used to, especially with skiing too. I would often be away during the winter. So, I mean, I was definitely used to working, like doing work outside of school, obviously during those times, it was like, I wasn't <laughs> rehabbing and I could write it and stuff. So it was a little more challenging, but I definitely had, had gone through that process and, and had the infrastructure and knew how it worked. So that definitely helped me being able to do it remotely. Oh, that's great. And then you got accepted to Stanford. I did. Yeah. So uh, the next year I applied and was accepted to Stanford, which was quite exciting. And I was quite fortunate. Did that have its own host of challenges though? Like, did you feel like you were recovered enough to do that? Or was that a little intense? Because it's the other side of the country. You're in Buffalo, New York, and you want to go to Stanford over in California. I mean, that's a big move anyway. And then having just gone through this, I mean, I guess it'd been like a year and a half at that point, but you were still rehabbing and everything like how was that transition for you? I wasn't really too concerned about like whether I would or wouldn't be able to kind of get around or because it was far from home because I knew I wanted to leave Buffalo for college basically. So pretty much any place uh, would have been away from home <laughs> to some extent. Um, there are those people who want to leave for school and get yeah. way out of, out of Dodge and then other people who want to stay close. So I get where you are. <laughs> yeah. A big reason I, I chose Stanford was for the rowing, which ultimately didn't really end up happening, but they had a really good rowing team and I spoke with their coach and I obviously loved the school and got in through through normal admissions and spoke with the coach and he was super encouraging and wanted me to basically come and join the team and row to whatever extent. This was early on in my recovery, so I didn't know whether in six months, nine months, I would be back somewhat near where I was before and able to row on a D1 team. And then I actually got accepted to a, a State Department scholarship to study in Berlin for a year. So I deferred Stanford for a year and studied over in Germany, which definitely had its challenges, just kind of being in a foreign country and going to a foreign school. I mean, I definitely grew a lot and had to, uh, had to adapt. And ultimately, it was, it was a great experience. And I'm super glad that I did it but it was definitely had its challenges. That is really cool. So at what point in this process did you write your book? Because that wasn't very long after your accident, was it? It was about a year and a bit after my accident was when I started it. So 2018, January of 2018. The book kind of came about from a professor of one of my older brothers who was, was running this class. And I got connected through my brother and I kind of joined on this experiment. And, and the whole idea was to just find something that you're passionate about and, and kind of become an expert in it and then ultimately transcribe that into a book. And so one area that I was really interested in was brain computer interfaces. The reason I was interested in was I was curious, obviously, about their implications and applications to spinal cord injury rehab. And so that is what brought me down that rabbit hole. And then ultimately, the book ended up being less about my recovery per se, and it was more just an introduction to the field, which is a really fascinating field. There's a lot of really cool research going on in that area, uh, whether it's for like prostheses and artificial limbs or even spinal cord injury research and therapeutics. Yeah. And it's called Plugged In, right? And I think you can buy it on Amazon. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's called Plugged In. And yeah, it's on available on Amazon and Audible. Okay. And Audible. <laughs> cool. I just think it's so cool. I mean, you have this very traumatic accident at your junior year of high school, 17, 
But then not only are you recovering from that, you get accepted to one of the top universities in the country. You take a year to go to Berlin first. You're writing books. I mean, it didn't slow you down at all. Like that just is what it seems like. I love it because it wasn't going to stop you. I feel like people go one or two ways when they have something traumatic happen. They either like that's the end and they wallow in it or they just kind of make a new path. And you were just like blazing new trails. And I think that's awesome. What would you say for anybody that's going through something, whether it's an injury or just something traumatic in their life, what would you say to like inspire them to follow in your footsteps? For me, I basically just, when I had this injury, I just kept going forward, I guess is the biggest message and doing it with positive attitude because I didn't really know where my recovery would lead. But I knew that if I put in the work, I would either adapt to this new life and and move on or potentially recover fully and go back to where I was. But I definitely understood that it wasn't, this wasn't the end. I mean, I was 16 years old. Like I still had hopes and dreams and I still wanted to achieve a lot in whatever, whether that's my career or athletically. And so it was definitely a, a quite a big hurdle and something I had to deal with. Really, my message is just everyone's worst day is your worst day. But if you just break it down or figure out what you can do to, to keep going forward and break that down into small steps and then just do the first one and then the next one and just keep moving forward and looking ahead, I think you will get through it, whether it's an injury or loss of a family member or what have you or other traumatic event. Oftentimes, when you're in the moment, it seems like this is the end and there's no way out, but you just compartmentalize and figure out what you can do to move forward and then attack that and then and just keep moving on. I love it. Now, I think that's so good to kind of just take a step back, break it down, like you said, into more manageable parts, right? That's not so overwhelming um, and attack it. That's awesome. So at what point did you kind of shift your sights and you found the Paralympics? Like, because you were going to Stanford, maybe trying to make the D1 team, like hoping you know, maybe there would be a full recovery, but like at what point did you realize maybe that wouldn't happen? Did you know about the Paralympics? How did that come into play? When I was in Germany, there was a, the old coach left Stanford and a new coach came in. And so when I started up my freshman year, I, I reached out to him and I was like, this is basically explain the conversation I'd had with the previous coach and how he had been um, excited to have me on the team in whatever role that looked like or however that looked like. And unfortunately, the new coach basically didn't really want me to join the team, was less keen. Ultimately, his thinking was he had a limited number of roster spots and I couldn't meet the York standards. So I couldn't be on the roster and therefore, ergo, I couldn't use or train with the team, which was definitely frustrating. And it was basically something I dealt with for my four years at Stanford. And we can talk more about that. But in that first year, like I spent nine months, essentially spent like, three or four months appealing that decision, like talking to the AD, showing them the emails with the old coach and basically trying to get the coach to to see that, yes, I'm not as fast as the D1 athletes, but I didn't really understand or know much about para rowing at that time. But really what my argument should have been was like, I'm a, I'm a para rower. And so if you want to set a para erg standard, I'm sure I would meet it relative to where the D1 is to the, to the world best time or what have you. But ultimately, that appeal was rejected and I wanted to keep rowing. And I definitely, that was something I always wanted to get back to after my injury was rowing and whatever, however that looked. So I got connected with Alice Henderson, who was a coach out nearby Stanford. Like actually, the boathouse that I trained out of, Bayak, was literally like 500 meters down the river from the Stanford boathouse. And she just helped me get into 
what is para rowing and like didn't really know where I would be classified at that point. And so we just like I got into a normal single, which I can't really I mean, I can kind of row a normal single, but because of my core weakness, if you're familiar with the rowing stroke, like at the end, at the finish of the stroke, you're basically sitting upright, leaning back with your legs extended. And after a certain number of strokes, my core just wasn't strong enough to hold me there. So I'd kind of flop into the bow. And so we went through like my freshman year, this is 2019. We went through various adaptations basically and got me into like my first adaptive boat, uh, quote unquote. I mean, I remember that experience was just so remarkable because I'd like I'd been in, I'd been back in the normal rowing shell and it was really, really hard. And I, I pretty much couldn't, like, I didn't have the core ability to go through a full rowing practice or like apply my body's full power just because my core was the weak link. And so like having these adaptations, which initially was just like a seat back at the end of the slide allowed me to just use my, the strength that I did have fully. And it was just such an awesome experience because it went from something that was really hard to do and I wasn't really going very fast and it wasn't like that similar to the speed or the technique of what I had been doing to now being able to fully apply myself and not be limited by like my core essentially and in the weakest part. That had to be so freeing. It, yeah, it really was. And I remember like those first couple of practices, it was just, yeah, it was like basically me remembering why I loved, why I loved growing. And uh, that was right about when COVID hit. So basically two or three months, <laughs> two or three months after starting to work with her when I was at school, COVID hit. So I came back to Buffalo and then didn't go back to Stanford for a year and a half. And while I was in Buffalo, connected with my current coach, who is also from Buffalo, Sasha Bailey. And she had in the past in 2019, the previous summer worked with another para rower here in Buffalo. And so she was familiar with para rowing and she basically offered to help. And we worked together that summer, trained some more. And then I got classified in that fall, so fall of 2020 and was in my first race. And then 2021, summer of 2021, raced at nationals for the first time and won that, which would have qualified me for worlds. You won your first nationals. Yeah, I won my first nationals. Wow. I do have to, I do have to caveat it to say that there really aren't many uh, PR1 rowers in the US, unfortunately. So there are only two of us in the, two of us in the event, but it was definitely still exciting and it was really cool. Uh, I mean, that nationals was actually like the first time I raced against somebody basically. So being like in the competitive, going down the course again with someone next to you and beating them, he was actually up. I remember he was up on me because I, I had a pretty slow start. So he was up on me and then I was able to walk through and, and beat him. But yeah, that was super awesome just because it's something that I love to do. And being able to row is one thing and get on the water and train, but being able to actually compete again and compete against someone is a whole nother ball game. That was kind of when I... That and, and kind of coming into into last summer was when I really decided that this is like maybe this is something that I wanted to pursue more seriously. And like if I really kind of put my mind toward it and keep up training and increase my training that I might be able to qualify for the Paralympics. And so last summer trained a bunch and qualified for Worlds, which were last fall. And that was my first international race which was a really, really cool experience for 
many reasons, one of which is that there were 20-some PR1 rowers, so 20-some rowers in my class. So really competitive. Yeah, really competitive. And it was just, I had four races, I had heats, reps, semis, and finals, all against full heats, six people in a heat. And so it was just a ton of race experience. And it was really the whole, it was like your traditional rowing with a full gamut of rowers versus here, I'm usually just racing myself because there aren't, there aren't many PR1 rowers in the U.S., that was a really cool experience. I ended up 10th there. And then basically I've just been training a lot over the past 10 months and yeah, hoping to qualify at Worlds this coming September, which is the first chance to qualify for the Paralympics. That's right. So what, walk us through that. How do you qualify? Because it, is it a US spot or are you having to qualify your own spot? Because I know every sport's kind of different in how they have to qualify to whether it's the Olympic Games or Paralympic Games because, you know, they cap the number of athletes and stuff. So how does your qualification process work? So the qualification process for my event, so I'm in the PR1 single. So they have seven spots qualify, the top seven qualify from Worlds. And then there are continental regattas, but most likely the U.S. won't be able to go because if any, basically if any of the country's boats qualify, then they can't go to the continental regattas, even for the other classes. So the other chance after Worlds is in May, next May. It's called the last chance regatta. And the the winner of that regatta will also qualify. Just the winner. Yeah, just the winner. It's, uh, yeah, the regatta of death. It's <laughs> dubbed and rowing. Aptly named. <laughs> yeah. Technically, it's qualifying a team spot. If I was to qualify, just because there isn't really a deep PR1 pool in the U.S., it would I don't know if I would be named right away for the spot, but most likely be me in that spot. Whereas like for the senior team, like the fours and the eights, if the eight qualifies, there's selection camp pretty much all the way up to a couple months before the Olympics for who's actually in the boat. Gotcha. So you don't know if there's like a trials for you guys, if you do are in the spot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there isn't, or the, at least it'll be relatively early on just so that I can train, like I can plan accordingly. But it's qualifying for qualifying the U.S. for a spot. So how do you feel this year walking into Worlds? Because it's just a few, what, like a, a little over a month away and you have been to a Worlds now and you got 10th and you kind of know a little bit more now like what you're walking into. But this is also more pressure because you're not just going in to see what it's all about. Like you're going in to try to be top seven to make that cut. How is your mindset? How do you feel going into this? <laughs> um, definitely a little nervous. So about a month ago in early June, I went over to and I raced in Italy for two weeks. There's a para only regatta. And then there was the World Cup two. And that was a really, really cool. That was really useful for obviously is is really cool to race in Italy, but also (laughs) to just race against a lot of the people that I'll be racing against at Worlds. Oh, cool. And have kind of see where I'm at and have those data points. And there's also some new rowers who weren't there last year who are going to be there this year because it's a qualifying year. So that was really useful to just get more basically data points to see where I am, where I compare to them, as well as just get a lot of race experience. Like over those two weeks, I think I raced like eight or nine times. Oh, wow. Which is just every time you get on the course, you learn a bit, you can try slightly different tactics and just get better at the start to the finish. Like it's just more repetitions which is great because here I just don't really have that opportunity for most of the year. So I'm definitely excited. I'm back in Buffalo this summer training pretty intensely with my coach, which has been really great because for all of the school year out at Stanford, I I basically trained by myself 
which is definitely challenging at times, training without a coach and without a team. It's just hard to stay motivated, honestly. So what do you do to stay motivated? I don't know. I think I just consistency is, is a big thing that I would focus on when I was at school, just like being very strict about like sticking to my training regimen, like wake up at 4.30 and you just go to crew. <laughs> don't really allow yourself to question why you're waking up at 4.30 when there's no one who's going to be at the boathouse. <laughs> so being back here this summer and training with my coach and also there's another, there's a PR2 rower who's going to Worlds as well. She's part of the mixed double and she's from Buffalo and, and trains here for most of the time in a single as well. So being out there and, and being able to row with her and against her and peace against her is great. And I mean, just having like even one more teammate is super awesome and, and being able to push myself and we push each other. When you're away, like back at school, does Sasha give you like a training plan or are you like making that up on your own too? Yeah, we still definitely work together. And so we talk quite frequently. So she'd give me the training plan. She'd get all my, my training data. I would just be like on the water by myself essentially and going down to the boathouse myself, but we still be in communication, which was super helpful in and of itself, but definitely more beneficial when she's there and can see me and like critique me on the water versus through videos and such. I kind of want to come back to that because I think there's a lot of people who have to train in isolation like that. Sometimes they just don't have partners. They're trying to make it on their own. Like I can totally relate to that myself. Like I know you said like you don't even question the alarm. You just get up and go. But like when you're out on the water and there's nobody to help you, nobody to correct you, nobody to push you, like how do you keep motivating yourself day after day after day? It's definitely a challenge. Like it's a big challenge that I faced Getting up and going to practice is, is one thing, but when you're out in the water and you're the 10th piece of 14 or the 20th of 24 pieces and it's really hard and you're tired and how do you kind of dig deep and push yourself when like there's nobody out there, like you're the only one. I mean, I'm the only one in my boat, so it's not like I'm letting down anyone else. For me, a big thing is just thinking about how I'll feel and like especially having been at, at the racing on the international level, like at Worlds last year, and knowing like where I finished and like when I was going down that course and, and giving it my all and thinking like, how can I be a little bit faster? How can I be a little bit faster? And, and really that the dividends that I pay when I'm out there alone are cashed in when I'm racing at Worlds. And you can't like the two weeks leading up to Worlds or when I'm there the week before training, it's like, oh man, like I'll do anything. Like I'll give it all to, to be a little bit faster. But at that point, it's too late and you need to have put in the work in the months before, which is definitely hard, but I think just kind of visualizing where you want to be and, and knowing that the little bit of extra effort you give now will really, like if you give a little bit more, a little bit past what you think you can every day, then that, that'll, that'll show itself in a couple months time. That's a big thing. Another big thing for me is just really tracking a lot of stuff, like just gathering a ton of data. So it's easier to see my progress, but also keep myself strict about what I'm actually doing. Like if I'm on the water for two hours every day, am I really like at the end of the week, am I doing the, the amount of meters that I want to be? Or like, am I hitting all the pieces that I want to be? Whereas if I'm not measuring that stuff, then it's like, oh, well, I worked out six days this week, then I must be good. And, and being able to say, well, you did, but three of those were a little bit slower than you should have been. <laughs> so I think like measure what matters is super important for motivating myself. And also honestly, like in doing that, then Sasha can also help hold me accountable and my coach can help hold me accountable and I can just hold myself accountable. That's super helpful. I like that. Who inspires you? Is there somebody who motivates you or inspires you to do these things or are you just very internally driven? 
No, I mean, I think I'm inspired by like a lot of my siblings, honestly, like my sister inspires me, my older brothers, they all just work very hard and really attack everything they can. One person who definitely inspired me a lot is a family friend who unfortunately he passed away in a bicycling accident a couple of years ago, but he was especially in my, he was like always a big rower up at our cottage growing up. He'd always be, be rowing on the water. He never like competed. He just loved rowing and would always be out on the lake. But I remember following my injury. He was very much really just interested in getting me out and doing whatever I wanted to, whether it was like getting back water skiing or he kind of introduced our family to yoga. And I remember he like brought me to one of his yoga clinics early on. And it was, it was still like to this day, like one of the best <laughs> yoga clinics I've been to and, and just his interest in, in helping out others and, and helping me do whatever I wanted to and, and making that possible, whether that was like, we weren't actually adapting stuff, but essentially that's, that's what we were doing and adapting exercises and activities to make them more inclusive. And yeah, I just try to kind of emulate his love of the sport and love of just being outside and being active. That's awesome. I love that. Where can we follow you online? I know you have a blog I was reading and I love that you kind of keep it up to date. Where is your blog that we can follow you or any social media sites so we can cheer you on toward Paris through worlds and then, you know, on through, hopefully you won't have to go to the, what did you call it? The race of (laughs) the regatta regatta of death. death. (laughs) Hopefully you can make it and not have to go into that, but where can we cheer you on through the whole process, no matter what it looks like? Yeah. Well, my blog is kind of my main like where I post updates and stuff about my rowing, that's Andrew Mangan, M-A-N-G-A-N dot substack.com. You can also, there's a link to that on my website, which is just A-D-M-A-N-G-A-N.com. And then the podcast, Connecting the Resilient, is also, it's on Spotify and everywhere else. That podcast, if you want to listen, but yeah, I mean, appreciate if you def- if you want to follow the journey, definitely the blog is, is the best place to do that. I try to stay pretty religious about posting updates, although I'm sometimes not great. (laughs) Well, I love it. I thought it was really good. And you hit on several of the things you've been posting about recently, which I think is awesome and, and great pictures too. So Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today, for inspiring us, for challenging us, for motivating us to just keep going and keep bringing our best. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.